This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk. Greetings for Author House and Author Talk. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book is titled, Except the Lord Build the House, a biblical examination of the return of Jesus Christ and the rapture of the church, of his church. And obviously, this is a book that's uh, maybe targeted towards people of Christian faith. My guest who joins me from near Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, is author Norman Eberly. Welcome, sir, to the program. Thank you. Your book is an extensive uh, bit of work, 314 pages. Now, you're an entrepreneur. You have a career outside of being an author. How did this book get written? Uh, well, um, first of all, I love the Bible. Okay, I studied prophecy for 30 years. Um, I studied biblical Hebrew for seven years, Greek for three years. Mm. Um, but um, I've always had a fascination with end-time prophecy, you know, the problem is so many different teachings exist on the subject, and, uh, you know, they're all based on, most of them are based on interpretations rather than the literal scriptures, you know? Right. And my feeling is, you know, what does the Bible say? Let's, let's follow what the Bible says, you know? So my motivation was to counteract the whole concept of interpretative speculation, you know, and present a picture of the end time that's based solely on the literal Word of God. You know, I mean, most theologians will tell you, you know, the teachings are these teachings are based on the word of God, but it's amazing how much conjecture is actually added into it. Mm. Um, but as I began to sketch it out, I thought, "Wow, this project is probably." When I when I realized how much I wanted to add to it, I realized this is going to take me probably twenty years to finish. Wow! And sure enough, it took <laughs> me twenty two years to yeah. publish the book. Wow! To write the book, so a lot of thought has been put into it. A lot of research, you know. This is not something that was done on a whim, right? You know, you, you, um, you had, you've yeah, used you've used the the sketching or the outline of your book sort of as a physical uh, building of a house. I, I noticed that in the style of your writing and in the contents, your your chapters and everything. Uh, you know, build a wall, build a you know, put a window in the, the the usual stuff that goes into building a physical house. You've done this in uh-huh. a spiritual interpretation of uh, prophecy and the Bible, and how it points to what you refer to as the rapture of His church. Well, it's not so much the interpretation. In fact, I I don't even get into interpretation till the end of the book. My feeling is the foundation has to be based based on what the Bible literally says. So, um. I use the analogy of building a house, where you first start with the foundation, the basement, then you lay the cross beams, then you construct the frame and the roof, and then after that, you can start adding cosmetic features like the facing, the drywall, the carpeting, you know. Mm. Those cosmetic features can be changed any time without disrupting the foundation and framework, okay? So I believe that any Bible doctrine should be structured the same way. There should be core scriptures that are, you know, you're just looking at what they're literally saying, and that's your foundation. <clears throat> and then you, you build a framework around that, that, you know, piecing the scriptures together, and then you can start adding interpretations later. Uh, let me give you an example of the antithesis, antithesis to this. Um, I was listening to a lecture by a, 
a professor of theology, and someone asked him in the audience, do you believe the rapture will occur before, during, or after the tribulation? Mm. And he said, well, I hold to the pre-tribulation view, and here's the main reason why. He quoted from Revelation 3.10, where Jesus said, you know, because you've kept the word of my patience, I will keep you from the hour of testing, you know. And he went on to explain how that proves the pre-tribulation rapture, and I'm sitting there thinking, you know, Revelation is a mystical book, and I interpret that scripture differently, and other people could interpret it differently. How do you know that interpretation is correct? You know, I would never use a scripture from Revelation as my foundation, you know. Hmm. So I talk a lot about Revelation at the end of my book. Um, in the beginning, I use just key scriptures that are just simple, straightforward, easy to understand, and just difficult to argue with. And that's how I construct my framework. You you have uh, dealt with a passage in Daniel that's uh, become a focal point of a lot of uh, students of Scripture, the 70, we- 70 weeks, Daniel 70 weeks. Uh, explain to my listeners what a s- Daniel 70 weeks uh, entailed and what it represented to you. Um, well, uh, because the book is about building a doctrinal house, uh, the introduction of the book is called The Blueprint. And so that's where I talk about the Daniel 70th week. I believe that sets the time frame, the framework for the end time. And different schools of thought have been, have come about, as, you know, when the coming of the Lord, when the rapture and so forth, the tribulation, all of that occurs at the 70th week. But we, even though people disagree as to the timings of those things, they all pretty much use the 70th week as the the framework, the time, the time frame. So that's what I use as, as my blueprint. Um, the uh, the abomination of desolation. Uh, some folks point to the destruction of Jerusalem in seventy A.D. Is that uh, kind of your thoughts as well? Um, I I disagree with that. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I, I, yeah, I, I I believe Jesus was referring to the end time. You know, right. Um, I, I talk a little bit about that in, in, in the book, but for, for the most part, I, I believe it's something that's going to happen in the future. Now, your book uh, is 314 pages and took over 20 years to produce. Um, in the interim, uh, you're also a businessman. Um, how did you work all this research and put it on paper? How did that work in? Oh, actually, um, I... Well, I got my my bachelor's degree at Berkeley College of Music. I'm a jazz musician, so I do that. Wow. For a living, I run a cleaning business. I clean offices and houses. And when you're cleaning, you got a lot of time to think. And, uh, I mean, mo- 95% of this book was written while cleaning, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I I just have my mind on other things while I'm doing my work, you know. It's, it's a nice job where I can think about other things while I'm, while I'm working, you know. So, so the, the, the book itself is an extensive read. Would you describe this as a book for a beginner, uh, intermediate, or serious student of Bible, or do they have to even have a foundation in, in Bible or Bible study? Okay, I intended this book for everybody, okay? Um, I wanted it to appeal to the scholars, okay, um, and to those who don't know much about the Bible, or to those who don't know anything about the Bible. And that was really the most difficult part about this book, trying to, to write something that would speak to all levels. I didn't want to bore the scholars with simplicity, and I don't want to lose the rest of my audience with esoteric language. So um, I tried to explain it from a, from a, a starting point, like let's, let's just clear the slate and start from scratch. 
Okay, so anyone who doesn't know anything about the Bible uh, should be able to follow along step by step as I'm building this house, showing them what the scriptures are saying. Did you have any challenges in um, stylizing or putting the the contents together in a logical fashion, or was that something that came easily to you? Uh, no, that that was that took a while. That was, you know, trying to find the right wordings was a challenge, and trying to figure out the order and the chronology of how to lay out the chapters was another challenge. Yeah, because it's a monster topic, and I wanted to cover a lot of ground. And so it took me a while to, to, to get the format together. Uh, do you, uh, in your spare time, your other spare time, which is uh, after writing and uh, jazz playing and uh, being a business guy, uh, do you also teach the subject in uh, live uh, live settings? Uh, no, not yet. I haven't been called upon to do that. You know, I taught uh, um, seminars on like creation versus evolution and things like that, but I, I haven't I haven't taught prophecy yet. What what is your hope for this book? What is the uh, the long range uh, desire in getting this into the marketplace? Um, I just want people to read it and see that uh, there's a lot in the Bible that uh, people are overlooking. Okay, there's a lot of details that uh, you know we need to just stick to what the literal scriptures are saying and 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 construct our eschatology around that. Eschatology is of course the study of end time prophecy. Uh, we need to build our eschatology around what the Bible literally says. Um, and this, this book is really a challenge to mainstream thought. You know, what we see in the left-behind novels and the movies, yes. a lot of that is inflated teachings. Um, for, let me just give you an example. Um, throughout the history of the Church, from the Church Fathers of early Christianity all the way up to the Reformation, it has always been taught that the tribulation will be a three-and-a-half-year period, and during that time, Satan and his Antichrist will wage war against the Church. And this will all happen just before Jesus comes back. So in other words, a post-tribulation return has always been taught. About 200 years ago, Edward Irving, who led the Plymouth Brethren, and John Darby was also included with them, the father of modern dispensationalism, these guys started to promote the idea that the tribulation is a seven-year period, not a three-and-a-half-year period, and that it's, it's going to be the wrath of God, not necessarily the wrath of Satan. Hmm. And so the Church has to be raptured before the tribulation occurs. Um, however, I don't know of any scriptures that say that. In fact, about a month after I published my book, I wrote a letter to Dr. David Jeremiah, he pastors the mega church out in San Diego. I yes. think Tim LaHaye used to pastor that church. Right. And I asked him, I, I said, where in the Bible does it say the tribulation will last for seven years? And then in that conversation, I also mentioned, where does it say the tribulation is the wrath of God? I, I see it as a three-and-a-half-year period, and it's going to be the wrath of Satan against the church. Mm-hmm. And the email, it was someone on his staff that was responding. I don't know who it was, but... The emails went back and forth a couple times, and my wife was reading their responses, and she said, well, they're not even answering your question. Hmm. You know, and I said to her, I said, that's because it's a trick question. <laughs> there are no, I know there are no scriptures that say the tribulation will last seven years, or that the tribulation is the wrath of God. Those things have been deduced and concluded over the last 200 years from various teachings. And I explain that in my book, how those things came about. You know, where, where did they come up with that? And, and, and I compare it to what the Bible actually says. 
it's a well thought out book. Uh, there's a, again a lot of uh, not only history, but uh, scriptural references that uh, need to be cleared up for those who are passionate about their faith and want to know what the future holds, and at least have an insight into what the future holds. You've done a masterful job in doing so, and it took 314 pages. Uh, a, a student could take a chapter at a time and just uh, focus on that chapter and learn its content and hopefully grow in their spiritual life. That's, uh, I'm sure, another goal of yours, uh, that people will begin to think logically on their own and uh, discover what the Bible says, not just what uh, you know, w- what the common the common thought is or the common scripture that's being maybe misused in in, uh, church settings. Uh, Where can we get copies of your book, Norm? Uh, Through Author House or Amazon, you know. They can also do Uh, a search under, yeah, can do a search under your name too, Norman Eberly, E-B-E-R-L-Y. And if they do a search there, they'll find this book, Accept the Lord, Build the House, a biblical examination of the return of Jesus Christ and the rapture of his church. A very important topic for those who are people of faith. And if you're not a person of faith, maybe you need to get this book and uh, check out the references and check out the, the content and see if it doesn't stir up something within you as well. Norma, additionally, you have written another book. What is the title of that, and uh, where can they get a copy of that as well? Uh, that book is called Who's the Least? The Kingdom Principle. Uh, I published that back in 1997, and uh, that can be purchased through Author House or, or Amazon. Um, Jesus made the statement, Verily I say unto you, among those who are born of women, there has not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Mm. However, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. So the question I would have is, what does he mean, he that is least? Who is the least in the kingdom of heaven? So that's the title of the book, and that's I, the whole book is directed at just that one sentence of Jesus. It's a small paperback. Well, fascinating. Again, listeners, research or find this and other under the uh, the author's name, Norman Eberly, E-B-E-R-L-Y. You'll find this, and uh, perhaps uh, maybe another book will be released in the future. If it takes 22 years, it may be a while before we talk again, Norm, but uh, thank you for joining me today and sharing your story. Okay, thank you, Jay. I enjoyed it. My pleasure for... Author House and Author Talk, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Congratulations on getting your book published. The effort you put into your work is truly commendable. But what's next? What will happen to all the knowledge you have worked so hard to acquire to produce your book? Here at Toginet Radio, we can provide you a platform to keep your knowledge working for you through the power of podcasts. The subjects our podcasts cover are as varied as the grains of sand on a beach. From life coaching, to military resources, to business success, even to the paranormal. We have a place for everyone. To get started on your next step, call Scott at 903-787-5880 or email him at scott at toginetradio.com. That's S-C-O-T-T at T-O-G-I-N-E-T-R-A-D-I-O dot com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Greetings for Author Talk. This is J. Douglas Barker. 
Joining me from Georgia is an author who has written a book titled, Will the True Believer Please Stand Up? Please welcome to the program, Vivian S. McNeil. Welcome, Vivian. Hi. Thank you. This is an interesting book on many levels. Uh, In your book, uh, towards the end of it, someone has uh, accused you of being an ordinary layperson with no extraordinary ability to write, but was led by the Holy Spirit to write this book. She feels like Noah must have felt when God told him to build the ark. So it was a challenge to you to, to write this, but you felt inspired that and felt there's a story that needed to be told. Tell me a little of, the, of your background. I know your mom was a very uh, important uh, influence in your life. How did that influence your writing this book? Well, yes, we were brought up in a Christian home, my mother, and we went to Sunday school. We um, went to church, and I was a... Um, to Sunday school teacher. I was also a Sunday school superintendent. I taught Bible st- uh, classes and stuff. And my um, main interest is to, you know, to help enable people to study and get with understanding. Because a lot of times when I was, uh, would be, uh, someone else would teach the class or something, and they would say, well, what is that to do with, you know, something that happened 2,000 years ago? Mm. What is that to do with life now? And so, so, but when I did the class, you know, they were able to make the, um, uh, to uh, make the connection. And uh, when that's done, it needs to be, you know, so they can identify with it, see how it it, it measures up in their lives, or how it affects their lives, or how they could use it in their lives. And the Bible it offers itself as uh, a handbook for life, really, mm-hmm. and it's every equation or every solution or every uh, thing in, in life, it's, it's a solution in there, but it's up to the individual to find the equation that fits that that particular uh, incident. I was uh, reading some of your first chapter, or, read, or you know, glanced through it, I didn't read it word for word, but I, I had the impression that a preacher could be standing up on Sunday morning and delivering word for word what you, what you had written in chapter one. Uh, have you been accused of being a preacher before? <laughs> Ever since I was a child, my dad <laughs> told me I was going to preach. However, I have been uh, uh, ordained uh, this year, about two, about a couple of months ago. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> and uh, I, I mean, all of this is just coming to being all in the same time and about the book, because like I the book was written like 16 years ago. Oh wow! And I was approached by uh, the art by um, the publishing company, uh, one of the guys there, and he was saying that he felt like it should be in print. Even I mean, it'd be put in on the public knowledge, uh, even though it was printed by 16 years ago, back in 2003. Hmm. It's still prevalent for today's society, and it, it really is. Well, absolutely, and the, the thing that also not amazed me, you know, I've, I've, I interview lots and lots of authors, and uh, in looking at your book, it is uh, straightforward. It is uh, somewhat of a Bible study, if you wanted to approach it that way, or maybe even a study guide for a small group, or uh, right. uh, maybe notes for a preacher. I, I don't know. There's lots of things about it that are good. The one thing that did surprise me, not, not, not totally, but I, I found interesting, is that you also have done some research. You were doing some uh, study of uh, the uh, the Israelites 
and the Maccabeans and and uh, obscure history, perhaps to some who attend church on a regular basis. Is that part of your passion uh, to get behind the story? You've already mentioned that as uh, as yes. something. Most definitely, you know, if people understand, you know, uh, what you're trying to put over, uh, tell them, they're more apt to accept it. And I do, you know, traditional background, uh, and just like with Jesus, and, and he used uh, jargon that pertained to their culture. They were, you know, most of us farmers, and he, you know, used um, things and languages that they could understand. And stuff, and a lot of time, and just like you know, it was saying about the salt of the earth, it was like you know, no good, and it's only used to be um, put on the temple on the man's feet. Hmm. Well, with that, they had you know, like a lot of ceremonies, like weddings and reception, they had it on top of the building up there. And if when it starts wearing and and you know, need repair, they would use you know the uh, solution that they used in the salt to repair it. So hmm. you know. That's under the man of feet, and under child tried it under the man of feet, feet of man. Yeah, so the history is there. You you have uh, researched it and done some things that are are not only stimulating to the mind, but also stimulating to the soul. Uh, the Maccabean thing, I, I in fact, I I knew of the Maccabeans and knew of their history, but not uh, maybe in the detail or the the approach that you used when you uh, when you highlighted it in your book. You've uh, you've written eight chapters, uh, interesting titles. The first one is Ego. Uh, share with right. my list, share with my listeners a little of an overview of uh, of what the chapters uh, represent. Ego, for example. Well, a lot of times we get besides our head cells, and we get the big head. And so, and uh, we, you know, and not we think we did it all or whatever. And and you know, God, we edge God out of the plan completely. So you know, it's us doing, and really and truly, you know, we are supposed to allow God to come in and the Holy Spirit to lead and guide us. But we think that we have to do it even in the church service. Hmm. And I'm in some amateur church service. And I mean, I've actually seen the Holy Spirit. I mean, just take off me. And I couldn't believe, I mean, I had never been in the atmosphere like that. Hmm. And I thought, wow, you know, this is something else. And we go and we look at church as an organization. Church is not an organization. It is an organism. It's a living thing, supposed to be. Christ I, I, is alive. Absolutely. Now, now, of course, I'm 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 on the same team that you're on, obviously, uh, by my comments. But uh, it's it's wonderful to see that you are still motivated, excited, and uh, planning to uh, look ahead to maybe some preaching, uh, you know, opportunities, which I think are going to come. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm more, I'm more like a, a wanted to teach, you know. That's my passion. Sure. But anyway, you know, as, as long as far as the message gets out, you know, and people get an understanding, that's my main concern. And I mean, that has been my concern. <laughs> sure. <laughs> now, don't accept the word because a lot of things they don't understand, and things that were written in that culture. It may not be familiar in our culture, and that, you know, that's a barrier. You've done a good job explaining some complicated things uh, related to faith in your book. Um, when you began to write it, you've, uh, I think, already explained the reason for writing it. 
Have you had, since the book has been out before, have you had uh, response from pastors or from others who have read the original uh, version of this of this work? I have, and I've had some people that actually, you know, um, became a Christian after reading it. Wow. And I've had some pastors that even use my, you know, use the book in teaching. And so. so it was influential, but like I said in the in the beginning, I just didn't have the money to promote it. Yeah, it takes money to promote. <laughs> it does. It does. Uh, that's what we're doing now. And now you have, again, eight chapters. Uh, I will read some of the uh, titles. Leaves cannot sustain life. Uh, we are what we eat. I'm I'm assuming from that you're referring to spiritual food, perhaps. Right. Uh, right. Right. Uh, realizing the devastating effect. And here's one naked and lost forever. Uh, that should get somebody's attention. What does that chapter entail? Well, if we refuse to accept Christ as our Savior, we will be lost forever. I mean, when, when Adam and Eve, they first took a bite of the tree, their eyes did come open. It was partial um, partial truth. Mm. They did. They knew something that they didn't know before. And then after they had eaten, they could not cover up the fact that they had eaten. It's when God came looking for them in the garden. Where are you? You know, even though our garden was omnipotent, he knew everything. He knew where they were. But, you know, he asked them anyway. And then, you know, who told you he was naked? You know, you eating of it? And it was obvious they didn't have to say what they had because of their response. And when we realized you know, and a lot of times we do wrong. We don't, we're not aware that what we were doing is wrong. But when the Holy Spirit reveals it to us, it's what we do about it then. We yeah. acknowledge it and we uh, repent of it. And and only God can help us to do whatever, you know, needed to be done a spirit, in a spiritual way. Because, I mean, and God will help you. He will, I mean, the Holy Spirit is awesome. I, I can vouch for that. Because oh. I smoked, I smoked for thirty-seven years, and like in two thousand three, I stopped smoking. I mean, cold turkey. Wow! I just and God told me I could do it. All I got to do is just, just stop and and start walking. Don't look back. That's that's pretty remarkable. Me. Yeah, that's remarkable. It has not bothered. Pardon? I said that is a remarkable that you were able to do that instantly, basically. And and my uh, one of my friends, uh, and she was a holiness minister, and he she would tell me how the Holy Spirit will lead you and guide you and all to and help you enable you to do things. And I mean, I didn't know because she was a holy. I'm Baptist. She was a holiness man, and you know they get more into whatever. And I said okay, because I thought the lady was crazy. <laughs> and I um uh, uh, you know enjoy had always wanted to learn to play a piano. And I had not had lessons or anything, but it was amazing. And after, you know, I went through some things and I got the book and I decided I'm going to buy me a piano and I'm going to learn to play it, which I did. Wow. And I just sat down at the piano and all that stuff that I heard when I was growing up in church. I said, I don't know how my, and I just couldn't understand. My fingers know how to get, get to the key and do it. And I'm thinking, wow, I guess she was right. I so, so, yeah. I guess I, I yeah. I need I need to find one of those churches nearby. I guess because I've always wanted to play the piano. I just and, and I I have a mental block. <laughs> but, right. Yeah. That's fascinating. I just, I mean, it was 
just my desire. I wanted to do it. And I just, you know, I mean, I don't know. I, I do by ear. I can't read music or anything. Right. <laughs> so, well, sometimes, sometimes that's the most effective. Uh, one chapter that you saved for the very last, and I think there's a reason for that, and uh, it will shock those that are thumbing through, perhaps uh, just by the title. I found it interesting. Poop and Stinking versus Sin and Guilty. <laughs> Someone has a sense of humor. Uh, that, that's, uh, that's a fascinating title. Well, the fact is, you know, uh, if you, you're in, you step in something, you don't have to tell anybody that you're in it. Absolutely. So, and then to sin and, and, and sin and guilty, and the same thing that happened with uh, uh, Adam and Eve. <laughs> they sinned, and the evidence <laughs> was there, and they couldn't hide it. Mm. Uh, and, uh, but, uh, we have to do what's necessary. I mean, and it doesn't matter. A lot of times people come up with making excuses, excuses. And I never like the excuse because it doesn't excuse the fact that whatever it is, it is. Mm. And it doesn't matter about the excuses because when we get ready to stand before God, he's not going to hear all those excuses. You're just guilty. I said, he gives you a chance to repent before his time to judge you. Well, I mean, we don't do that I I, I I wish you had a little more energy and more excitement about your about your material. That's uh, that would, and I'm just teasing. Uh, the 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 cover of your book has a a photo on it. It looks like it might be a mission photo. Maybe is that uh, is that what I'm seeing there? The uh, two gentlemen and standing in front of a huge crowd of several well, thousand. The thing of it is, I asked the company to design me a cover, and I told them what I was looking for. Mm. I wanted something where most people, you know, uh, to 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 uh, demonstrate, you know, uh, those the the field that will stand up for whatever. Beautiful. Well, this is a fascinating book, and you've done a wonderful job. This is a re-release of something you had earlier, but it still holds true because of the content. The title of which is "Will the True Believer Please Stand Up?" My guest author Vivian S. McNeil. Vivian, where can right. my listeners get a copy of this? It's available on uh, Amica, uh, um, Amazon, and I, um, I'm i sure they, they can request it also through, you know, the book company. They can, Barnes & Noble, request it. They don't have it available, but it can be, you know, um, ordered through them. Um, but Amazon.com, uh, basically, some of the books so that I looked up online and some of the other books was, you know, had them. Oh, they fabulous. just have to order them. Fabulous. That's great. Uh, thank you so much for sharing your story. Let me spell McNeil for the uh, listeners. M-C capital N-E-I-L so it's Vivian right. middle initial S McNeil. Right. Thank you, Vivian, for sharing your story and uh, best of uh, luck with this. God bless and speed you on your journey. Is there another book in the works, do you think? Well, I'm waiting on the Lord. <laughs> so, um, I've been asked to write, you know, when I'm going to write another one and stuff. So I have to do is wait until the Lord direct my path. Well, I hope, hope, hopefully we'll get to talk to you again if that uh, takes place, because, again, this is a short read of 128 pages, but it's uh, full of interesting material and some research in addition to the what I would call sermon notes, which are very well done. Thank you, Vivian, for sharing your story. Well, thank you. Thank you. My pleasure for...
Author House and Author Talk. This is Jay Douglas. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Do you ever wonder if you're the only woman who runs errands in her yoga pants so it will look like she went to the gym? Or how about the only mom who feeds her kids raw cookie dough? Or are you the only one who cooks her family cold cereal for dinner? Do you need more laughter and less loudness? More self-love and less self-loathing? More joy and less judgment? You're not alone. Come to The Living Room, a place where we get comfy, candid, and confident together. Come seeking sanctuary and leave feeling renewed. We're saving a seat for you. Give yourself some living room today. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Greetings for Author Talk. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book is titled That They May Hear. Subtitled The National Alliance of Black Interpreters, New York City Chapter, An Interpreter's Journey. And joining me is the author of this work from New York City, Christine Dudley Daniels. Welcome to the program, Chris. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. This is an interesting uh, story or book in its uh, own right. Now, I'm curious how you became interested in uh, interpretation interpretation for the deaf and how that uh, came about in your life and how this book got written. Okay. Well, you know, it's really quite interesting because I retired as a social worker in 19... uh, 99 mm. and started taking up sign language just as a you know beautiful language i want to learn it um and while i was taking it uh, i sort of met some people basically i met one woman who whose parents was deaf and she said to me you know if you really you're good at this you really need to learn this you need to go back to school and i said to myself you know hey i'm retired i don't really want to go back to school oh yeah but And she encouraged me. I did go back to school. But in going back to school, I got involved in the deaf community. I got involved with this young lady, which is one of the characters in my book. And um, and it was like often that I met these beautiful people. I sort of, because I'm a social, I was a social worker, the whole advocacy piece in me, you know, sort of kicked in. And I saw where I could bring some things to the table. Right. And uh, really became quite involved in the deaf community, even to the point of setting up a deaf club here in Harlem. You also mentioned that there was a minority interpreters for the deaf organization that uh, somehow closed. Uh, this right. is an outcropping, an outcropping of that. Uh, you also, did you help establish something that would uh, take its place? Absolutely. The minority interpreters for the deaf was a preceding organization that had gone defunct. Um, the same young lady, whose name is Celeste Owens, that uh, sort of encouraged me, came to me and was talking about setting up another organization, the National Alliance of Black Interpreters. And her reasoning was that there was a national organization. And so that we would could set up a chapter and we would have the um, we would have the authority from a, a national organization, which would sort of, sort of be a support network where she felt then there would not be a need for this chapter to become defunct in the future. 
Beautiful. So I became involved with that, and yes, and and we set that organization up. So the book is written about those first ten years. And is it that was? It's mm -hmm. the organizational side of uh, setting this up, and also the key, the key supporters of uh, of the new organization. Correct. Yes, it is. It's about the you know setting it up, and the and basically you know the. One of the main supporters was a was a pastor from my church, um, and who also gave me the name to the book oh, for beautiful. the book. Yeah, and so we used we you know, we used my church to have our meetings and to set up, and then we also used our, uh, the um, New York Technical College to have our meetings and set it up. But we did we got a lot of community support. In your book itself, in telling the story, is there something there that, uh, besides just the bare facts, I guess, in how this was, uh, how this came together, is there some adventure involved, um, maybe in an indirect way, that that also will entice the reader to get involved and uh, also will get them curious about the organization? Well, I think so, and you know, because basically, what I really tried to talk about are the struggles. Uh, I think that for people who are not in this profession, you see people interpreting and you think, okay, they learned the language and then it's just a matter of putting your hands up and flying. Um, mm. And they don't uh, necessarily see the other part of it. The struggle for this uh, for this group, this small group of people that, that set this up was, first of all, was getting interpreters trained appropriately. You know, it's not, you can't just learn the language. There's a, there's a whole process. There's a whole educational piece and getting this. There's a whole motivational piece and, and getting people to interpret it to make sure that you are putting out the language correctly. And then the other side is, is also uplifting a, a deaf community. And in this sense, this book is sort of written about the African American deaf community, which was a large segment that's, that was basically ignored. Mm. So that you know that that became a, a a big focus of this organization was to uplift them, is to bring them up. You know they they were this is a group that sort of suffered because of lack of interpreters. Mm. So therefore they would be denied you know some basic things you know job health care information just information on how to you know. Uh, because of the lack of interpreters. And so our services were a lot of volunteer services for the African-American deaf community. Well, it's a, it's a, an incredible skill. I have a friend, a close friend, that I had uh, growing up in high school and, and uh, beyond that, whose both of his parents were, were deaf. And uh, Andy, this friend of mine, uh, was very skilled at what he did. I think his brother went into the um, the teaching community, although he was a uh, uh, you know was was abled was not disabled with uh, hearing loss, and uh, was involved in in teaching in that community, in the in the deaf community. Uh, there is some emotion involved in the interpretation as well, I think. At least there was with Andrew. He was, um, you could see the facial expressions uh, come through when he was uh, very passionate about something. Is that something that's taught or is that just a personality thing? No, that is something that is taught. I, I am also a teacher. I teach um, American Sign Language levels one and two mm. at a college level. Um, yeah, because the language itself is not just the hands. 
the hands sort of help the deaf understand what you're really saying. So most of the language is in the expressions, is in the facial, is in the body. So that it's not just about putting hands up. It's about the sort of like from the mid part of the body upward. Uh, all of that becomes a part of the language. And, you know, we do it automatically when we speak, you know. Right. You know, we don't just stand there and talk. You know, we have mm-hmm. we have other things that go with that language. And it's, it is, it's the same thing with the American Sign Language. So that there is the expressions, the facial, you know, it, it depicts the grammatical structure. You know, the grammar is in the facial and, and, and your, your body language more so than in your hands. Uh, Chris, how long did it take you to complete uh, the work uh, of, uh, com- of this book? Was this uh, something that had to be researched, or was it just uh, your, your personal knowledge and in- interpretive knowledge of, uh, of the subject material? Well, this was basically, um, this is really my third book, you know. But mm. this, when I was writing this book, this, was, this would have been my second book <laughs> when, wow. when I was writing it. Um, I'm, I'm a history buff. I love history. Um, and so when I became involved in this, with this organization, you know, I sort of started observing from a, a different perspective. Remember, I came out of the social work. I was a social worker for 35 years. Incredible. Um, and I was a social work administrator, so I sort of helped to set up uh, programs for the city of New York. Um, so I was used to writing. I'm used to documenting. And so as we went on, I basically was collecting things and documenting things and observing things and also making notes. And so I always was always making notes of what was going on in the room when we were meeting. You know, not just what was being said, but, you know, you know, the struggles, mm. the, uh, the watching the, 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 the presidents. Right? I really write about the first three presidents and watching them try to encourage and try to motivate, you know, this small group of people who are coming in trying to learn this language and, you know, and also how they were dealing with the deaf community. So I was always writing it. And it was at that point probably um, in, I guess it may have been the third and during the third president's uh, tenure that I decided, you know, okay, you know, I need to really start putting this down and I spoke to my pastor who's also a a writer has written many books and you know we sort of went over uh, a manuscript and I did, and at that point in time I decided to write it so it took me probably about nine years to write it because wow. I was writing from year to year <laughs> well that's incredible it's 100 and, 100 and, some yeah. pages 132 pages do you you uh, have uh, shared also some photos and uh, mas- basically made this a type of journal. Would that be a-, a way to describe this? And if so, what do you think the reader is going to get from this? Well, you know, hopefully it, uh, you know, and you're right, I did do it as, as more of a journal. Um, but also, you know, when I, I think the second part of it says the interpreter's journey, that is my journey. Mm. And it is so, it is also sort of look at it. You know, I started as a student. I started as a student. I moved to the interpreting field, and then I came back as an advocate for the deaf. Um, And when you read it, you will see that you will see that journey and that transition. You know, at the end of the at the end of the story, you really see my total transition as an advocate, which is still what I'm doing now. Um, The whole journal aspect of it is that I think that readers will hopefully will come to respect 
the interpreting profession, and the deaf community uh, a, a little better, with a little more understanding of what it is that we do, why we do it, and for and looking at the deaf community in a different way. That these are people just like hearing people, very intelligent families, parents, grandparents, you know, with uh, with a uh, uh, with a lot of goals in their own life, and you know, so that it is the basically the interpreting community that can help uplift them only because of that they can communicate, they can share that information to them. Is there any other book in the marketplace that shares this story, even in a, a maybe a different uh, format? Uh, no, I think this is a, probably about the first. Incredible. Uh, you you have uh, certainly had an interesting journey yourself with your background and your education skills. Are you in the same community that you were uh, that you grew up in? I am. Well, you know, I've, I'm in the heart of. I grew up in basically in New Jersey, South Carolina kind of thing. I am now in Harlem. I've been in Harlem for over 50 years. Wow. Um, so, and everything that I do is basically centered around the Harlem community. Uh, like I said, we have a, I have a deaf club. I have 48 members uh, in that deaf in the deaf club. That um, and that was a first because I set that up within a civil rights organization. Hmm. That's a first for any civil rights organization to have a deaf component. So they have a strong deaf component there, and this is what they do. You know, they really let deaf people that come that they're dealing with issues of their rights and issues that um, they may have been discriminated against or something has happened in their life, and we deal with that. And we deal with monthly workshops so that deaf people always know what they can do and, and you know, but, but in any given situation. Beautifully put. You so, now mm-hmm. now Harlem has uh, in recent years sort of uh, had a resurgence of uh, culture and uh, arts and and other uh, other things. I, I, am I understanding what's happening there correctly? Absolutely, absolutely. And you know, and I guess you know, if you were here, like I've been here for a number of years, you you you, know, you go out and you and you really see the transformation before your eyes. Ah. And you know, in many ways, that's a good thing. Absolutely. So, you know, I'm looking to see what other great things are going to come out of it. Fabulous. This a book that you've completed is titled That They May Hear. And uh, under that, the subtitle National Alliance of Black Interpreters, New York City Chapter, An Interpreter's Journey and the Interpreter and a Specialist in Those Who Are in This Journey, Christine Dudley Daniels. Christine, where do we get copies of your book well you can really go to my website which is www.duddaniels.com um, I have a website so you can you can talk to me you can ask me questions you can also order you can also order from Amazon you can order from Barnes and Noble and you can order from Author House Publishers Excellent. They can ask their local bookseller also for a copy of this book, and they can uh, they can source it as well. Absolutely. Beautiful. And your other books, I'm guessing, are on your website, so they can uh, find out a little bit more about the author and about your passion for writing and sharing uh, your story. Uh, so thank you for joining That's me it. today. 
Again, the author, Christine Dudley Daniels, and the book, this one, is titled That They May Hear. Thank you for sharing your story and for the work you do in Harlem. Thank you so much for having me. Honored Appreciate to, it. Honored to visit with Love you. Love the conversation. <laughs> uh, great, great talking with you. And for Author House and Author Talk, this is Jay Douglas Barker. <laughs> 